Before we dive into our final week, let's go ahead and pray together. God, I thank you so much for all the people that are in this space today, all the people that will be at our downtown parish today. Lord, I praise you for the lives in this room and what you are doing in them and through them. I pray, Lord, that you would just deliver a pointed message to each person in this building, God, that they would know it is from you, that they would walk away feeling love and encouraged to go out and be your hands and feet, Jesus. I ask that you would be with me, that you would calm what is happening in my voice, and um, yeah, you would just bless the words that are going to come out of my mouth this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we have been walking through this series titled Habits of Grace. Today is the last week, and we have basically been exploring different concepts and practices that we can implement into our lives to grow our faith and grow our relationship with God. So we have discussed things like worship and community and relinquishing control, opening ourselves up to God, how we can actually hear from God and hear the voice of God. And a lot of what we have been discussing has been very me-centered. And by that, I mean we have been talking about what it means um, to implement practices into our own lives, things that I can do to change my life, to grow my relationship with God and strengthen my faith. And today, we're going to shift things a little bit. And we are going to talk about how our actions for others can deepen our faith as we discuss what it means to incarnate the love of Jesus here on earth. Now, that is a strange term. And as I was looking through the list of spiritual disciplines and concepts that we were preaching on, none of the other preaching team wanted to talk about incarnating the love of Jesus. So I got it. But it has been a blessing to to dive in this week and prepare this message. And really, incarnating the love of Jesus It really just means loving like Jesus would here on earth. We know that when Jesus came down to earth, he was coming to show us the face of God's love. And throughout his time on earth, he called others to exhibit the same behaviors and actions that he was living with in his daily life. In John 13, at the tail end of Jesus' ministry on earth, he is with his disciples and he decides to wash their feet. They have just seen how he has lived his life over the years. They have witnessed the outcasts that he has loved, the people that he has healed, the strangers that he has ate with, the religious leaders that he had corrected and rebuked out of love. And he tells his disciples in John 13, 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Over and over again, Jesus' life and the ways that he loved, it was a testament to the two greatest commandments that God instructs us to follow as we aim to love like Jesus loved. And that is loving God and loving our neighbor. We see this in Mark 12, verse 30 through 31, as some religious leaders ask Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? And he replies, starting at verse 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And since we know that you and I and everyone in this space and all of our neighbors, since we are all created in God's image, loving God and loving our neighbor, they go hand in hand. We often receive messages like this, though. We hear sermons about loving God and loving neighbor. It's woven into Christian doctrine throughout history. In the 90s, people wore the WWJD bracelet as like a tangible reminder of, you know, how do I love like Jesus loved? Or if you're Pastor Richard, 2019, still rocking it. (laughs) And uh, I think we often live with this abstract idea 
of knowing that we're supposed to love God and love neighbor, but it's rare that we get into the nitty-gritty of what our actions with others should look like and how we should steward our lives as we aim to follow the love of Jesus. And so we are going to look at three areas today, speaking in love, stewarding in love, and serving in love. And we will explore how keeping our focus on loving others and being the hands and feet of Jesus, it doesn't just impact our neighbor, but the practices will actually fill us, and they will grow our faith too. So first, incarnating the love of Jesus, it means that we must speak in love during our interactions with others. If you're familiar uh, with the many different love languages, how many of you would say that you're a words of affirmation type of person? All right, there's, there's a good handful of you out there. That's not the best news for me, because as your pastor, it actually, I score lowest with words of affirmation. I would prefer to give someone a hug, serve them, give them a present. Anytime I try to say nice things, they just are kind of awkward and kind of disingenuous. Um, they sound disingenuous. They aren't actually disingenuous. <laughs> but it just, it just comes out weird. So if I do have to express words of affirmation, I prefer to do it written, just because then I can practice and it just comes out a lot better. Anyways, I'm working on it, I promise. The truth is, is whether that is your love language or not, we all want to be seen and wanted and valued. We all want to receive blessing and be encouraged, which in scripture, the word for blessing, it translates to a variety of things. It can mean to be praised for, to celebrate, to adore, to honor, to offer approval. And this is a natural thing that we crave because when we are blessed or encouraged by others, we feel filled. And we can internalize our worth, our value, our dignity, and see ourselves as God sees us. Research has actually shown that when people are appreciated at their place of work, when they are encouraged, they not only are happier, but they are more productive. They actually turn out better quality work. I also found that people are more likely to stay at their job if they're receiving regular encouragement from their supervisors, even if it's happening at a higher rate than pay raises. So if you're a supervisor out there, just remember what a nice encouraging word can do for your, for your team, for your employees. Encouragement is, is important to how we see ourselves and how we live our lives. And throughout the arc of scripture, we see encouragement regularly through blessing. Prophets bless, and kings bless, and parents bless their kids, and Jesus blesses. Even God the Father blesses Jesus, his son, in Mark 1, verse 11, at the start of Jesus' ministry after his baptism. Scripture reads, And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Jesus reveled in knowing that God was pleased in him and that he loved him. And this loving piece of encouragement would actually catapult Jesus into his ministry on earth. So we're going to take a moment to look at a man in scripture who was so well known for the ways that he blessed others and encouraged others that he actually was nicknamed Son of Encouragement. His birth name was Joseph, but it is rarely used in scripture. Instead, he is referred to by this nickname, and it comes from the word bar, which means son of, and then the nabas, which means encouragement. So therefore, his nickname is Barnabas, which you've probably heard from. So we are going to get into Barnabas's roots in a minute, but I want to jump to Acts 11, verse 22 through 26. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it comes right after the Gospels, and it basically describes the movement of Christianity, how it started after Jesus' resurrection. 
And as people in Antioch, during this passage, as people in Antioch began to turn to Jesus and became part of this movement, the apostles, who were the guys that were in charge of what was going on, they decided to send Barnabas to Antioch to see what was going on and to offer them some encouragement. Verse 22 reads, News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So because of his encouragement and the way that he lived his life, people were brought to the Lord. Verse 25, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. It wasn't just Saul and Barnabas' teaching that made a difference in the life of the church. It wasn't just the knowledge that they were sharing that spurred people on towards following Jesus and becoming part of this movement. Scripture tells us that it was partly due to their encouragement. The movement of Christianity was not just birthed from knowledge, but it was birthed out of speaking in love and encouraging their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Later in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, they get in this little little feud, and uh, it's because as they continue on their missionary journey, Paul does not want to bring along this guy named John Mark. John Mark had left Paul and Barnabas on a previous missionary journey, We can kind of see from Scripture that Paul might think John Mark is a little bit of a slacker, a little bit, um, you know, not, not doing what he should be doing, and therefore Paul thinks he shouldn't come along in further missionary journeys. We see this in Acts 15, verse 36. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. So we see that Paul wanted to give up on Mark, but Barnabas chooses to give him another chance and offer the encouragement that he needs to reach his full potential. And later on in Scripture, we actually see Mark's potential come to fruition, as in the book of Philemon, Paul refers to the same Mark as a fellow worker in Christ. And then today, we have proof of the power of Barnabas' encouragement to Mark and the ways that he continued to build him up through Mark's gospel. So the John Mark that they are referring to is the same Mark the Evangelist who wrote the Gospel of Mark that we have today in our modern-day New Testament. So while it may not seem like it makes much of a difference from our end when we bless another person and offer them encouragement, there is no telling what God is going to do with that. When we speak in love, we are sowing God's promises into someone's life, and we are sowing their true identity into the forefront of their mind as we bless them. Additionally, when we encourage, when we bless, when we speak in love, we are actually speaking protection over someone's life. Because when we do this, as we fill someone with truths about their life and offer encouragement, we take up space that might have previously been held by lies or discouragement or low self-worth or guilt or things that we know are not part of God's identity for us. If Mark only would have listened to Paul, we have to wonder where the church would be today. Where would the church be today without Barnabas and the encouragement that he offered 
And so we can learn from Barnabas that as we aim to incarnate the love of Jesus, we are called to do what we can to strengthen instead of tear down, and to bless and to encourage as we speak in love to one another. But we are not only called to speak in love, we are also called to steward in love. You recall that I told you we were going to come back to Barnabas's roots. And so we're going to turn now to Acts, verse 4, verse 32 to 37, and this kind of describes how Barnabas gets his start with the apostles. It reads, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So not only was Barnabas the great encourager, but we see here that he went all in. He knew that in order to advance the gospel and spread the good news of Jesus, to love people like Jesus did, he couldn't hold back with what he had been given. His stewardship reflected God's love. Scripture doesn't get into the emotions that Barnabas felt, but we know that he was human. We know that this had to have been challenging to give something so large over to the apostles and over to the church. But even though it was challenging, he knew he was called to steward what he had in love. And today, the act of good stewardship is our personal responsibility too. And in order to love like Jesus loved and give sacrificially as Jesus gave, what we have to know is what sacrifice looks for us like personally. Until we know what sacrifice looks like, we can't know what good stewardship looks like. And so one of my favorite stories that we're going to go through on sacrificial giving is when Jesus is anointed at Bethany by Mary, Simon's sister. Mark 14, verse 3 through 9 reads, While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. This is significant because it wasn't just that she was anointing Jesus with expensive perfume, but the alabaster jar was also incredibly expensive. So she's not, you know, like pouring one drop at a time on Jesus' head. She breaks the alabaster jar completely so that it would never be used for any other purpose again. Verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Some have misinterpreted this verse to think that Jesus was saying we shouldn't care for the poor. But really, what Jesus was doing is he was praising Mary for her sacrificial giving. He was speaking in love over her, like we just talked about. And now scripture doesn't, it doesn't tell us that she gave everything she had to purchase this perfume, but it was equal to a year's wages. The author is not trying to be dramatic. He's stating a fact. 
And for Mary, the amount that was sacrificial for her as she stewarded the resources entrusted to her and used them to honor God was a year's wages. That sacrificial act, though, it also revealed where Mary's heart was. Good stewardship reveals what is in our hearts. It reveals where our priorities lie as we assess the ways that we are exerting our time and our energy and our resources. Earlier this week, I was cleaning out my closet and I was getting ready for fall, even though it's supposed to be 90 this week, it's fine. And I was trying to use the KonMari method, which many of you have probably heard of. You go through all your belongings and try to figure out what brings joy. And uh, Marie Kondo, she wrote a book about this. She has a great Netflix special on this. Highly recommend. It's very entertaining. She goes to people's homes and helps them tidy and clean up and pare down what they have based on what sparks joy. Now, I'm not saying there's any theological basis to this process of tidying. Uh, Please do not hear that. But it did help me realize how much I have, how little I need, and how I could have allocated my resources differently last fall when I was making all these purchases. You see, having too many material items, it doesn't necessarily harm us, but it certainly prevented me from giving as sacrificially as I could have over the past year. And I was sitting in my room, and you know, I had this like big pile of clothes on my bed, and I'm listening to worship music, and I just got so upset as I realized the ways that I had stewarded my resources and also how that stewardship was a reflection of the priorities on my heart. And God was convicting me in that moment. I didn't need all of this. Most of it served the same purpose. How many plaid shirts and, you know, oversized knit sweaters do you really need when you go into a new season? You certainly don't need five of each, right? They all serve the same purpose. And so I asked God to intervene, and I asked him to redirect my priorities and help me to be a good steward so that my life would align with God's priorities. And I've had to do this before. I've had to ask God to intervene in my calendar during seasons where my time and energy, it wasn't being stewarded in a God-honoring way. I have had to ask God to do this in my relationships when they were not God-honoring and furthering his kingdom. Stewardship is not just about material items or finances, but everything that we have been entrusted with. And I think Assessing how we are loving others with what we have been entrusted with, it speaks volumes to what we will receive from God in the future. If you have been praying for more time or more energy or more money, God is not withholding from you. God loves you. God wants to answer your prayers. Right? He hears our petitions. But we have to consider the option that he knows what's best for us and he's waiting for you to steward well what he has already given you. If our calendars are not reflecting God's priorities, then why is he going to give us more free time? If our bank statements are not reflecting God's priorities, then why is he going to give us more wealth? If our relationships are not honoring God, then how is he supposed to grow them in depth of love? If the energy that we're exerting is not serving God's kingdom, then how is he supposed to fill us? We live in a world that is obsessed with entitlement and stature and material worth, and we have often allowed these things to shift our finances, our calendars, our energy, our resources, our relationship, and all of our attention from building God's kingdom to building our own kingdom, to loving, from loving others, 
to loving ourselves. And every time that we take a step toward building our own kingdom, we love less and less and less like Jesus loved. Now, stewardship is unique. This is really important for you to hear. Stewardship is unique in that every individual's intentions are different. Only you and God know the intentions that are on your heart. Only you and God know what you are working with, what your calendar looks like, what your finances look like. And so it is not on me or the church or anyone else to judge the heart of another person. In fact, growing up, I knew someone that uh, she wouldn't go to church on a particular Sunday if she didn't have enough money to put in the offering plate. And I hate that Christians have built guilt into the process of giving because guilt is not from God. And it masks the joy and the life-giving nature of stewardship as we imagine and dream of the things that only God can do with our resources. While stewarding all we have may seem challenging, the good news is that when we can recognize that God is greater and above all material worth, then we understand that everything we receive is a gift from God. And if everything we have is a gift from God, the same God who called us to love him and love our neighbor, then stewardship becomes an expression of that love toward others. And when we are good stewards, our agendas line up with God. And while it still hurts a little to give sacrificially, it will hurt a little bit. It'll sting every single time. But it will end up making sense to us because we can see it as an expression of loving others. As we steward in love, we see what God is able to accomplish with our time, our money, and our energy. And witnessing this, it shifts us from having faith only in ourselves and what we can accomplish to having more faith in God and everything that he can accomplish more than we could even possibly imagine. Finally, let's hone in on that relationship piece and discuss what it looks like to serve one another in love as we think about loving like Jesus loved. Serving one another is all about our actions and our behaviors towards each other, reflecting the love that Jesus acted with when he was here on earth. In John 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, if we take this apart, we quickly realize that while we may act lovingly to some people every now and then, only God can love everyone at all times and at all places like Jesus is telling us to do, right? It will forever remain this lofty goal for us. On this side of heaven, it will always be a goal that we are never fully able to complete. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, while this verse and the verse that follows, that whole paragraph really, deserves an entire sermon of its own, one that I'm always happy to discuss, uh, what we're seeing here, though, is we will never be able to say, yes, I've done that. Check. Let's move on to the next commandment, the next instruction in the Bible. Because as we aim to serve one another in love, we must recognize that it's going to be an ongoing process over and over and over again to put the needs of someone else before your own. Everywhere Jesus turned, he served people in love. Everywhere, every single day. He healed the sick in love. He gave sight to the blind in love. He cast away demons from people in love. 
He cared for the ostracized in love. He fed the hungry in love. He valued children in love. He respected women in love. And he raised the dead in love until ultimately he gave his life for the world out of love. But if you're anything like me, since we know that this is an ongoing process, a goal that we will never fully able to complete, since serving others will always be on the agenda for tomorrow, I often hesitate to make it part of my today. And if you're like me, you think, you know, there will always be next month to start serving at the food pantry. There will always be next week to invite my neighbor over for dinner. There will always be next uh, or tomorrow to, to take a coffee to my new coworker at work. There will always be next Sunday to start serving in my church community and loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. But serving in love is not something that we can check off of a list or fit in when it is convenient. Rather, it is a rhythm that we must incorporate into our calendars and into our daily lives. And as we do, those we serve will be a testament to God's love and our relationship with him will deepen and be transformed too. Friends, we are surrounded by a selfish and entitled world that constantly distracts us from this mission to love God and to love neighbor, to incarnate the love of Jesus. But because of Jesus, because of his grace and his strength, we can ask for God to reign in how we speak and how we steward our resources and how we serve one another. We can ask for him to guide our decisions in our finances, in our relationships, in our calendars, in every way that we use and exert energy and say, God, may your will be done here in this specific situation. May your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Use me to bring about renewal. Use me to love others. Use me and the resources that you have entrusted me to be the hands and feet of Jesus as I step into the world each and every day and try to love more and more and more like Jesus did. And when we make the simple ask, it is not by our power that we can do everything that we have learned today or over the past five weeks in this series, but it is by God's power alone. And it is not only those around us who are impacted, but our faith grows too. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day who, truly an incredible person, constantly going out of his way to serve others, and to serve the church, and to give sacrificially, and to invite people to church, and to invite people into community that is safe and welcoming. With most of his free time outside of work, he is loving others like Jesus would love them. And I asked him the other day, are you getting filled at the same rate that you are pouring out? And he responded, well, I ain't empty yet. And at first I was concerned because ain't isn't a word and I like good, good solid grammar. But then I was concerned because in my mind there was potential of him becoming empty. But as I reflected on this, I realized that God's love doesn't run out. And it is not up to my friend, but it was God's love that he is pouring into others. And it is God's love that he will continue to pour into others. In God's economy with Jesus as the source for our love, as we speak love and steward in love and serve in love, we will never run out. And not only this, but somehow as we pour out and overflow God's love into other people, we're the ones that get filled. Our faith 
can grow and deepen as we love like Jesus loved. How amazing is that? Our faith is not about us, but about God equipping us to love others like Jesus did. All the practices that we have discussed over the past five weeks, yes, it is important for us to grow in our depth and knowledge of Jesus, to discover new truths about the power of his resurrection, and to grow in our faith and deepen our relationship with God, but ultimately, it is not about us. It is about God who is powerful and mighty and could fix all the problems of this world in a heartbeat, choosing to be in relationship with you and use you to bring love into this world. He wants you to speak in love and to serve in love and to steward in love because it is by his power that we are equipped to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It is by the power of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection and that grace that extends from Jesus that we are transformed and we are then able to transform the lives of others. It's a beautiful gift that God has given us and He wants to grow us and he wants to challenge us. He does not want your spiritual life to ever become stagnant. He knows that life is an adventure. And as we have talked about spiritual transformation and the different things that you can do to deepen that over the past six weeks, I want to remind you that spiritual transformation, it takes place in the areas of our life that doesn't already look like God. And we all have at least one area. So if you are aching for something more, aching to be transformed spiritually, I encourage you, spend some time with God discerning what that might be. Go back and listen to the previous five weeks of sermons. Maybe it's something from today. If you if you already are serving God, serving the church, serving your neighbors, but you're aching for something more, take a look at your finances. Or if you are if you are tithing, you're giving 10% of your income to the church, but you are still aching for more. Maybe take a look at your relationships and ask God to to be present in those relationships and make them God-honoring to him. I'll remind you one more time, too, that this is not something that you can do on your own ability. There is far too much darkness in this world that is competing for your attention. It is by God's grace and his power alone that we can be transformed. Let's pray for that. Lord, what God, we thank you so much for your grace and your love that um, allows us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We thank you for, for paying that ultimate sacrifice and for showing us what pure love looks like. And for not only making that sacrifice, but for rising, rising from the dead and creating this power that can now be alive in us as we accept you and as we learn to love like you. And so I pray, God, that for every person in this room today, Lord, first I pray that they would know that they are so deeply loved. They are so deeply loved by you in ways that we cannot quantify in this world. And I pray, God, that as they continue to grasp onto that, that they would want to be transformed spiritually so that they can grow closer to you. And ultimately, Lord, that that transformation that transformation would flow out of them and that they would serve others in love. They would speak in love and in encouragement and they would speak blessing onto their brothers and sisters, Lord. And that they would steward everything that you have given them, their finances, their time, their energy, their resources, to love like you loved. 
We praise you, God, for meeting us here today. And I, I ask that this message would just continue to ring in people's hearts as they go on their way today. In your name we pray. Amen.